You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. And hello, welcome to another episode of One of Us Reviews a Movie. Oh wait, that's not what we call it. Uh, We're being more (laughs) avant-garde than that. Uh, And we're being... More East Coast. We're being more cool uh, because we're reviewing uh, The Velvet Underground, which is the the B-side to the flower power movement uh, of the 1960s, uh, a band which has influenced many, which surprisingly a lot of people don't know about. Go figure. Uh, but they're a band that, that famously it has been said about them that uh, nobody went to go see them, but everybody who did, did start their own band. Uh, so now your is your chance to get in on the party because, uh, Todd Haynes, a wonderful filmmaker, uh, that many of you probably know of, has made an entire documentary about the, the band, uh, which, uh, you know, was the, the field that gave Lou Reed his start, uh, a, a man who would go on to, to influence many, as well as John Cale. Um, and also uh, a look at how they, they got together, their interactions with the, the New York art scene, especially Andy Warhol. This is a good one. If you're, if you're into music and you've never heard of the Velvet Underground, it is time for you to learn. And we're going to help you out a bit with that. I am Bo, and I am here with... I'm Chris. I'm Marco. I'm Elliot. Gentlemen, well met. I hope you enjoyed the documentary as much as I did. Well, you know, Todd Haynes tr- tried to create a Velvet Underground simulator, I feel like. <laughs> like, it's done very abstractly. There's a lot of split screen, and not even just split screen, but there's like 12 images going on on the screen at once. Lots of the same sort of psychedelics that they used to use at their shows. And a non-stop soundtrack of Velvet Underground songs with lots of talking head interviews, both from the past and current. And it's one of those films that I think... I really wish I had gotten high before I saw it. I'll tell you that. Because it was clearly designed for a slightly altered state of mind. And having read a lot about the Velvet Underground, I can't say this delivered any information I didn't already know. This is not one of those you go into with <gasps> big reveals. It's just the story of the Velvet Underground. The appeal is the way that, well, A, it's always pleasant listening to the Velvet Underground. They're, they were tremendously influential and one of my favorite bands uh, when I when I first discovered them. I was already into punk and one of the older kids was like, here, take this. I'm like, I don't want to listen to some hippie shit. Neither did they. <laughs> Trust me, sweet summer child. Listen to this. It's like, it may not be punk rock, but all punk rock owes something to the Velvet Underground. I, I think this is an experiential type film. You just kind of sit and let it wash over you. But by saying that, you definitely really have to be in the right mood to watch it. If you're already a hardcore Velvet Underground fan, as I think all of us here are, you're not going to get anything new. Like Chris is saying, there's nothing here I have not heard before. And in fact, it's got a very limited period of time in which it concentrates, basically roughly before the band begins and almost immediately after the band breaks up. 
not even going into the infamous fifth non-VU VU album by Doug Ewell, the, the last man standing in the group, which everybody disowns. It, it basically begins and ends there. But what Todd Haynes did that is so interesting, Chris is right, it's experiential. He's trying to recreate what it felt like, and he's doing it like a filmmaker would. He's doing it through what he knows best, and that is through the lens of 1960s avant-garde film. The big obvious influence is Andy Warhol, but you're going to see footage from everyone, from Stan Brakhage to Maya Darren to Kenneth Anger and all of these guys. So sonically, visually, it's trying to capture that aesthetic of that New York art scene from 1960s. It feels like an installation piece. If you go into it with that mindset and not thinking, well, this is going to tell me everything I've ever wanted to know about the Velvet Underground, but was too afraid to ask... If you go into it with that idea, you're going to be disappointed. If you go in as an experience, like, hey, this is the closest you might ever get to attending Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable. And on that level, I enjoyed it very much. It is very much a normal Talking Heads kind of documentary, kind of um, No Direction Home style, but it gets very abrasive uh, visually, which definitely mimics a lot of their music, which is obviously accompanying a lot of this but it was weaved together really, really well and really did become a, a whole piece. I really liked a lot of the interviews seeing Jonathan Richmond, who had a lot of real estate in this documentary. is really, really entertaining. Um, Jonathan Richmond of The Modern Lovers, which are almost a uh, Velvet Underground clone. Um, he was kind of their lackey for a while. I didn't realize that John Cale taught him how to play guitar. That it was Me the neither. It wasn't, it wasn't John, yeah. it was Sterling. It was definitely Sterling. Oh, Sterling. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Sterling Morrison. You're actually the better better guitar player, but Kale, arguably the the greater overall musician and uh, composer in a lot of ways. Lou was the rock, definitely the the rock star of the group, and you know would would go on to a rock star career. Uh, whereas uh, Kale's probably more well known as a producer these days. He's got some stunning uh, solo albums worth worth checking out. Uh, if you haven't ever checked out like Paris 1919. Do yourself a favor. It's 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 worth the dive. Or vintage violence. Yeah, I agree. This is this is certainly not a this isn't a Ken Burns documentary. This is an, it, it's experiential. Uh, it's meant to mimic certainly the visual aspects of the early Warhol period. Definitely the first album and a little bit of the second. I think the energy falls off a bit after that because it, it is to an extent that... And then Lou fired everybody and they hired Doug Yule and they made some other albums. There are certainly people who are just like, man, if you if you listen to Velvet Underground and Ico and uh, the uh, White Light, White Heat, that's kind of really all you need. The, the other stuff is not as rich, but I've enjoyed all of those albums and I, I kind of wish they'd... They had done a little bit more of a dive, especially considering that this is only like an hour and 40 minutes. Well, it really sets up that division that the first two albums is one band and the the next two albums are Lou Reed's band. Yeah. And you can tell the first two are deeply experimental and sonic. The Kale's influence is all over it. They're, they're just trying everything. And uh, Nico adds such a really different feel to the first album, especially. But then after that, they're, they're still really good records. They're just... Pop songs. They're really good pop songs like Lou went on to do and like Transformer and stuff. Like, oh, this is this is good, but it doesn't have that same feeling that those first two albums have. Yeah, that first record is such a perfect amalgamation of so many people doing their own thing. And you can definitely feel with each subsequent record, it becomes more and more the, the Lou Reed band. And there's great stuff on there. 
Lou Reed was a damn good songwriter. Honestly, uh, once you get past the post-punkers, I, I think it's probably those last two albums that had just as much or more influence on like the indie rock type scene. Yeah. Uh, things that are a little bit more, uh, a little bit more poppy, a little more mainstream, but still have an edge to them, which kind of ends up falling into your sort of college radio type scene in the eighties. Everything about this movie is very, very limited to a specific point of time. I can't stress that enough, not only in the terms of the visuals, in terms of the time the band was active. I was able to watch this at a press screening and had a great time because sonically, this is a really fun film to watch because all of the drones on the soundtrack tend to be moving between different speaker channels when they're trying to convey the idea of how that created harmonics amongst the uh, people listening in the audience. The other thing I had the pleasure of experiencing was Todd Haynes himself doing a post-screening Q&A where he talked about the making of this documentary, and he specifically said he wanted to limit this only to people who were there, either through archival footage or contemporary interviews. This is not one of those documentaries where suddenly there's some academic or, hey, there's Henry Rollins telling you how great and important this band is. (laughs) It's just the voices of the people who were there. It's the closest thing to a time capsule that I can think of rather than just a standard talking head documentary. But it's going to give you a nice little taste of what to expect because all that other information is out there. I agree. I think this is mostly a primer on the Velvet Underground. I mean, it's I wonder if the fact that it's produced by Apple has anything to do with that. Hey, come to Apple Music and listen to The Velvet Underground, which you should do. Yeah, this will give you a pretty good idea for their music and their style. I'll go so far as to say that I know quite a bit about the VU, too, and I'm a huge Lou Reed fan and a a pretty big John Kill fan, for that matter. Uh, But there were certainly some new little insights here and there. And because, as Marco said, that it is about the people who are there, like... I certainly knew Mary Warrenov was was part of the Warhol scene. I knew she was around for, you know, Plastic Fantastic and the, the Happening period and all that. I didn't know she went on fucking tour with them to California. I mean, that that was a new one for me. And uh, Mary Warrenov, for uh, those not in the know, is, is one of my favorite, like, B-movie actresses. She had an artistic partnership with Paul Bartel. She was in Death Race 2000. She was in Eating Raul, both of which you should definitely check out. But yeah, it was, it was really amazing to, to kind of see her, like, offer her perspective as someone who was just like, you know, I was in that heat of the moment trying to, like everybody else in the factory scene, to be famous just for being famous. They were they kind of invented that concept in a lot of ways. And to hear her perspectives of just like, yeah, you know, sometimes John could be a real asshole. And it's just like, oh, wow, I, I never really thought about Mary Warnov and John Cale, like, sitting around shooting the shit. But it sure as fuck happened. And so you do get a little bit of insight and, for me, warmth. Yeah. Because there's so much has been written about the, the Velvet Underground and about their influence that it's kind of nice to have this very intimate picture of them, even if it is... Not the deepest gloss you're going to get. It still, I think, is going to be interesting for people who do know a lot about them. I think people, you know, especially the way that the the thing is put together visually and sonically is going to be a treat. You know, if you've just heard the song Heroin and kind of gone like, oh, yeah, I can see how that was kind of ahead of its time. Well, then then you're in for a spectacular treat because uh, you're going to going to do the deep dive. Uh, Seriously, just go buy Velvet Underground featuring Nico like right now. And listen to it. It might take a couple tries because even today, 
there's nothing that sounds like it. Like, uh, there were bands that clearly were trying to, but really didn't even come close. I've never heard anything else I'd say. That sounds just like Velvet Underground featuring Nico. I was listening to the, the that album today. There are some songs that, that you could almost see, like, getting big, but then it's like, oh, well, you're talking about waiting to see your heroin dealer. <laughs> and so that wasn't going to get on top 40. And some of it's the topic matter. But when you start to get into, especially the middle of the album, when Venus and Furs kicks in, then it's just like, oh, okay, now we're off to the fucking races. And it, it never really stops. Uh, but you still get that kind of chanteuse quality that, that Nico is, is adding that is on no other album, uh, you know, kind of before or since. Uh, and you should check out her solo album, Chelsea Girl, by the way. Yeah, each album is a unique experience because of the different lineup configurations, the different songwriting approaches. Uh, yet each one, I think, stands on its own. It's part of a continuum. Frankly, I still have a hard time reconciling the notion that the Velvet Underground is an obscure, underappreciated, little-known band. For those of us who are a little bit older, I think we grew up our entire lives, at least from the late 70s through the 80s, with everybody going, hey, this is the band that influenced everything. For a decade, nobody would touch them, but now all of your favorite bands love them and are name-checking them. There's no shortage of tribute albums, blog posts, books about this material. It's really not that far a line between, you know going back to some crazy shit like Venus and Furs, going from shiny, shiny boots of leather to shiny, happy people. <laughs> You'd never think about it, but yeah, R.E.M., Joy Division, everyone from punk, post-punk, goth, rock, early metal, avant-garde music, any other number of subgenres that came out before, I'd say, the mid to late 90s. If you grew up in the 80s and you ever wandered around in the rain feeling sad and listening to your favorite band and those things all synced up, that band sure as fuck had a lot of Velvet Underground in the record collection. Robert Smith definitely had a lot of Velvet Underground. If you look at Just Sister Ray, which is an incredible, I don't even want to call it a song, it's, it's like a sonic piece of art. That one song, you know, pretty much created noise and post-rock. Um, or, you know, I was responsible for 40% of it. Yeah, New Wave, No Wave, all of it. It's very No Trend. Yeah, No no Trend, Noise Rock. That was like my big thing, you know, when I was in my late teens, you know, Sonic Youth and what have you. And all of that is like, and then there was Sonic Youth after Velvet Underground. You're like, oh, this, all that came right from there, even with a lot of the same collaborators. I think also if you're, you know, just historically, if you're looking for, you know, New York was such a different place than, say, California or a lot of other places we think of when we think of the 60s, like Swinging London or what have you. It was darker. Like, heroin hit New York a long time before. Everybody else was like in the 70s, just like, oh, the, the flower culture is dying because everybody's doing heroin. And New York is like, oh, we've been doing this shit for a while. We've been yeah. writing songs about banging smack. Where have you people been? Yeah, New York's come full circle. <laughs> you guys not been listening to jazz? Yeah, New York's been doing heroin since the 50s in the jazz clubs. And then finally the white kids picked up on it and suddenly thought they were They were going cool. out to California in the early 80s going, have you guys heard about this stuff after? <laughs> well let's go to final thoughts marco get us started i mean i've kind of said my piece uh, as far as what i think the importance of this band is and what kind of expectations you should have going into this documentary if you're looking for the warts and all highly detailed examination of the velvets and their impact 
you're going to get a taste of that. But there's definitely more thorough sources of information. Fortunately, it's readily available. This is a good introduction for people who are maybe a little bit late to the party or have always wanted to check them out but didn't really want to do the deep dive. I think this is a really good sampler of what the ethos of the band was. And then from that point on, you're free to go and investigate the individual music tracks themselves. One thing that Haynes said that I think resonates is that everybody comes to the Velvet Underground at some point, even if they've always known about them. You come to it when you're ready. And what ends up happening is you feel like you're discovering something for the first time, even if you've always known about them. That was true of my experience. This was a band I'd heard of many times, and I'd heard Lou Reed songs on the radio but when I finally sat down and listened to them, you know, back in college, and I was like, oh, shit, yes, I get it now. I totally understand. And I listened to it at the right time when I was ready to understand. I think for some people, this movie might be that for them. It might be that experience that's going to push them into learning more. And if that's the case, then, hey, this movie did its job. See it in the theater if you can. It's got a great soundtrack. It's got great use of the uh, surround sound. Just watching those small panels blown up onto an enormous screen makes the images much easier to look at. I'm going to give this 9 out of 10 times I was rubbing jelly on my shoulder. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> Elliot? Yeah, I largely agree. Uh, this isn't my favorite rockumentary, but it's definitely one of them. It is definitely a good primer for this band. I really hope a lot of people come to this band after this. Uh, it is weird that they still seem pretty unknown. I grew up with my dad playing a lot of Lou Reed, but not a lot of Velvet Underground, so they were a band I didn't get into until later high school. So maybe for people who are in high school now, they'll see this and it'll uh, open up some windows. There's a lot of great interviews in here. Um, it is mostly restricted to people who knew the band members, but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I really enjoyed this pretty much top to bottom. And I'm going to give it 9 out of 10 sailors shot dead on the floor. <laughs> Bo? You know, my first exposure to the Velvet Underground was, ironically, I, I didn't get, like, Velvet Underground or Nico or even White Light, White Heat, like uh, a lot of people. I got, like, a, a shitty cassette tape that was uh, one of those fly-by-night cuppies in the, the 80s put together, and it, it had their, quote, hits on it, which didn't include heroin, but it did include Sister Ray and Venus and Furs. And that was kind of my, my like first experience, and it, it was really eye opening and drew me in. I think that's kind of what this is. You know, is it perfect in the sense that the album Velvet Underground or Nico is absolutely not? It's not deep, but it is intimate, uh, and I I like that about it. I I do like the fact that there are several times that you feel like, wow, I almost you know feel like I'm there at the happening. You know, letting the stuff really wash over me. And the, the people that are contributing to it are, are doing so out of uh, real love, although they're they're fully prepared to say, like, yeah, John could be an asshole. Ah, Lou could be a real asshole. <laughs> There's no whitewashing here, uh, but it is offering you the, this uh, incredible picture of a band. These musicians at this incredible period of, of their life where they're they're shaping into at least two of them, the legends that they're, they're going to be. I think anybody that... Is just interested in rock music in general uh, or contemporary music in general should go see this just to, you know, see how it hits you. I think you'll find it time well spent. I give it uh, eight and a half out of ten times that Andy exasperatedly turned to Lou and said, oh, you only wrote ten songs. You're so lazy. You <laughs> 15. 
<laughs> All right, full confession. I was very tired when I saw this movie. I, one of those, this is the only slot I have. I have to watch it now. And I'm like pounding Diet Dr. Peppers trying to stay awake. And so I found the first third of this a little hard to get through. I mean, at one point I got up and like walked around the block just to wake myself up and then took a shower. I was like, okay, gotta be ready. But it wasn't really till they become the Velvet Underground proper that it really started getting my attention quite a bit. And while, once again, context being a lot, in my experience, it felt like this could have been tightened up some. I felt like it didn't need as long of an intro as it really did. Whatever. Like I said, I was kind of half asleep for part of it. Anyway, once it starts going, it's quite good. Todd Haynes brings Todd Haynes to it, most certainly, and that's a good thing. This needed a lot of style to match Velvet Underground. A very dry, just Talking Heads documentary would have felt anachronistic about the Velvet Underground. But if you're a big fan, this is just a pleasant way to hear them play their songs, really. I mean, like, you go in the theater, like Marco said, and, like, playing the, all these, all the, their hits, like, top volume with like just a sonic barrage, a visual barrage of imagery from the time Edie Sedgwick doing something, you know, what have you is really pretty I'm cool. sorry, but uh, if, did... if seeing John Cale on What's My Line didn't wake you up, I don't know what is. I've actually seen John Cale live twice. He was really, really fascinating, really interesting. Got to talk to him afterwards a little bit too. Very, very, very despite what he might have been like back then, he was very pleasant when I met him. At the Electric Lounge no less, where Bo used to work. I, I met him backstage at the Awesome Music Awards. Fair enough. Enough. I'm sorry. I'm just picking up all of these names you guys dropped here. I think you. I think you lost this. <laughs> Is this yours? I'll tell you about meeting Maceo Parker sometime. You know who else famous? I know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think this movie definitely one thing that's going to come as a surprise. People don't watch a lot of documentaries about this time is what an utter prick Lou Reed really was. What a selfish narcissistic asshole. Very talented, but every documentary that's ever had Lou Reed playing any sort of functional part in it, like being a part of the scene will detail how much people thought he was an obnoxious prick. Whatever. I didn't even know Kale was thought of as being kind of a prick in his own right before I saw this, but it was the time, if you will. Probably lots of drugs involved. I got a spoiler alert, boys and girls. All young musicians who get a modicum of success are assholes. Yeah, that tends to be the case. Yeah, but they didn't have any modicum of success. That was the problem. He was an <laughs> asshole before the success arrived. <laughs> but that's the even worse part. They're even bigger assholes when they're all their friends and like other art luminaries are telling them, you're a yeah. genius, everything you do is genius, but there's no money Getting coming Getting famous in. in New York and nowhere else will turn you into a suppurating asshole. <laughs> it's like internet famous back then it was just new york famous right <laughs> i'm gonna give this seven and a half out of ten times that i'm glad mo tucker did not go off on one of her famous right-wing nutball rants with the exception of her really being the one saying we didn't like hippies fuck hippies but they did <laughs> and neither do we yeah that's true i'm not really crazy about hippies when i was a kid i thought they were cool and then i was like oh y'all yeah, didn't actually too. do anything <laughs> they avoided the draft <laughs> Yeah, that's the difference between the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead. When the drugs wear off, one of those bands sounds incredible. The other one, not so much. 